2 Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are fresh off the Nine Retreat. Two really rich days with Ian. I think Ian dropped the mic on us about 25 times. (laughs) And we had Beatrice Chestnut join us via satellite from Italy. That was pretty great. Two hours of subtypes and instincts. That was amazing. All that to say, we had a really great time. And for those of you that couldn't make it, stay tuned with us via social media and Ian's website, iancron.com and theix.co. And you can catch the next one. We are just getting started with these retreats, so there will be more where that came from. Oh, yeah, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Puckett's. Last night, Ian, his wife, Ann, my wife, Mary Keith, and I got to hear our friends Buddy Green, Jeff Taylor, and the Angelic Solve. That's some world-class music right there. Hey, if you enjoy the show, I want to invite you to join us on patreon.com forward slash typology. It's a way to support programs like this you love. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. And now, without any further ado, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Luke Norsworthy, welcome to Typology. Thank you. I am so honored to be in your podcast, Ian. Well, I uh, I am, uh, like you, honored to have you on board. And prior to, to speaking, you were complaining about the fact that you feel like guest number 50 on this show, and I, I'm feeling bad that you feel like I've ignored you for so long. You were one of the very first guests I had on my podcast, because I couldn't imagine anyone more exciting to have than you. <laughs> and... I guess there are 50 people more exciting in your world than me. So, I mean, that's cool. I mean, if that's where I sit in your life, that's fine. No, no, wait a minute. Now, I tried to explain this to you that there are nine numbers on the Enneagram, and I can't have, you know, I got to interview people staggered in terms of numbers uh, so that, you know, I don't have like five weeks of like threes in a row. Uh, So, you know, I'm I'm finally getting to you as one of the sevens. I'm pretty sure you've had like, four weeks straight of Enneagram 4s. And it's, I don't know if you're trying to get like a new sponsor. This week of Enneagram 4s brought to you by Prozac. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Whatever pays the bills, I'm not judging. I'm just saying you, you have a lot of 4s on there. Okay, so, well, okay. Well, what medication should I have prepared for 7s? When I go with four weeks of 7s, what medication am I going to, you know, get as a sponsor? Well, I, I think, honestly, just the 12-step program because we're going to all end up there at some point. Oh, Wow. Wow. I'm just saying we we lean towards addiction, isn't that right? You're the expert. Well, I'm not saying <laughs> not the expert <laughs> on addictions. <laughs> no, I was going to say no, that's <laughs> I'm just precisely. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yes, I meant that. I meant on the enneagram, but I'm also not going to debate the second point that you might have uh, thought I was implying. <laughs> well. Um, I mean, we I, edit on this I mean, every number, every number on the Enneagram kit would have a different reason for perhaps uh, succumbing to an addiction of some kind. My first would probably be genetics, disposition, temperament, but his family history. But I think if sevens did it, it uh, it would probably be because of impulse control issues, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Second, they can be uh, reckless, risk taking um, at times. They also would might might do it to. Uh, evade in a very efficient 
way, chemically evade having negative emotional or psychological feelings or mm-hmm. uh, or for anxiety. Because, you know, m- most in that space, five, six, seven, people experience a lot of fear and anxiety. Yeah. But if you're fast enough runner, you never feel it. And that's been my game plan for 36 years of life. I'm kidding. That's not true at all. But how's it going? Seven. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I'm, I, I ran track in college for a reason. The, um, the, isn't the sin of, any, uh, of sevens gluttony? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where I was going. That's all I was saying. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I understand. What do you mean that that's what you were saying? What, how does gluttony work itself out in your life as a seven? Well, I'm, okay. As a seven. Um, it means that um, one bowl of ice cream at night is good, but two bowls is always better. That's one is fine for some people, but if one is good, then let's just double it down and, and have more. That that's my general thought process in life. Okay, so that's also very eight, though. I mean, eights can do that. Nines would do that if they were narcotizing on the couch. Uh, ones might do it if they were going through the trap door in the privacy of their of their own home. Uh, so. My question, with, when you speak about gluttony for sevens, that passion or deadly sin has to do with, with, a, with a gluttonous, lusting appetite for new and exciting ideas, adventures, yeah. uh, new conversations with fascinating people. Uh, you know, everything is about the future and planning things, uh, seeing a future of unlimited possibility, and it's a gorging on all that stuff. It's like... They can't get enough stimulation and pleasurable experience into experiences into any one moment. It's like they can't stop eating them. That's the gluttony. Exactly. Of seven. And having them on the horizon, having your calendar say, you've got this exciting thing coming up for you is, I wouldn't say as fun as the actual event, but it's pretty close. It's intoxicating, right? Yeah, it's outstanding. It's great. I would highly recommend it. <laughs> you mean it's, it's still working for you? I, I think, no, I... Um, like I say a lot of that hyperbolically. I mean, I'm, I, I've learned a lot. I, I've used this metaphor before of, I, I do like ice cream and I've learned that I have to eat ice cream with a small spoon because mm-hmm. I, I would always do more than I should. And I've learned that I, I've got to pace myself on things. And, you know, it's not just like ice cream. It's like projects. It's, uh, yeah, I could finish this book and then I could have another one done in four months from now. So let's just jump right into it. And I've kind of learned that one the hard way of, hey, you probably need to not overcommit yourself to stuff just because it seems like something that you want to do or would be fun to do. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Have you had trouble finishing projects in the past? Like getting going and then like you get toward the end and it's like, oh, there's another exciting thing to do and you never finish the thing you're doing and move on? I don't think I have a problem. No, I really enjoy starting things. And so the stereotypical seven, like you'd like to start a million things and you don't finish them. I definitely like to start things. I also have a, I I get things done and I, I I finish things and I move on to the next thing. And so, yeah, I, I I don't think getting things done is my big issue. Oh, what's your big issue? I, I just want to keep on doing a lot more. And it's more exciting things and more exciting things that I want to jump into. There's always something else I'd love to do. And I need to realize there's a small spoon you need for life. And just take what you can, what's in front of you, and be okay with what you have right now. So be content what, with where you are. Okay, so what has that cost you? Like living in that pattern of constantly going from one thing. What, what, what's it cost you? Well, I, I would say most recently is – so. I, I've got a book I finished up a while ago and I thought, well, I can get this next one done um, 
like four or five months before the contract says I'm supposed to have it done because I'm just I'm ready to move on and get excited about it. And I never gave myself time to kind of ramp off the last one. And I just stayed at that same sort of, I wouldn't say frenetic pace, but a, a higher RPM than I should have been function on. And I think it created stress and didn't give myself to proper time to come off and I don't know, pay more attention to my family than I should. Hmm. So you're saying it's cost your your family or your marriage or time with your kids that you're you're distracted, you're sort of uh tigger, you go tigger on them and you're just boinging around. Is that is that yeah. kind of what's happening? Yeah, I, I don't want to say it cost myself my family and my kids. I feel like that's I, I've, well, I actually, I've like spoken my... to them, and actually, so what, what what I'm doing right now is I'm breaking the news to you. Is this an intervention podcast? Yeah, kinda. Yeah. Okay. I figured that was bound to happen at some point. <laughs> it's gonna happen. Well, I mean, I think that for a lot of sevens, like like I actually had a conversation with a seven once, and uh, that he said something so fascinating. And he's an older guy, and he said, uh, "Yeah, he said my first marriage. This is after he." you know, had done some Enneagram work and he was in his late sixties at this point. He said, my first marriage, I realized after I learned the Enneagram and being a seven that I actually didn't love my first wife so much as the idea of the new adventure of marriage, the idea of being married. This was going to be a new thing. And, uh, that that was what, what really motivated that, that, uh, that marriage. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, mm. that's something, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not saying that's what happened with my marriage by any means, uh, no. which is still flourishing. No, I'm not saying it did, but I'm just saying that's how sevens can roll. I mean, and that's how yeah. the denial about and how you can be so asleep to your life in your yeah. in your personality patterns that you can be doing that sort of stuff without knowing it. Yeah, I, and I think the ability to live in denial comes very easy for us sevens. Mm. How, how would you define denial? I think it's the ability to compartmentalize your life and to put mm. certain things on the back burner and say, well, I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not going to worry about it. It's, uh, I inevitably have a registration on my truck that is expired every year. It always happens. And I never think anything of it. Like, it's just, okay, whatever. It's no big deal. I'm just going to leave it there. I'll get pulled over. I'll have a nice conversation with a police officer, and then I'll eventually go get it fixed. It's going to happen, but I don't think about that. It's just, oh, that's that's there on my, my truck windshield. No big deal. And I think that happens, that, that can happen with bigger parts of your, your life if, if you go unguarded and, and, and you're not critically analyzing the things that matter most to you. Okay, so as a seven... At 36 years old, pastor of a big, successful church, podcast, successful podcaster, soon-to-be-successful author. Um, what stands in the way between you and the person you most want to be? Hmm. I bet it's probably, like, just being here right now. Hmm. And it's, it's jumping to the next thing. And I think it's that that voice that I've got to do more, that there's more that you need to do, there's more you need to accomplish, and that if I accomplish and I get to do these, I have opportunities to do other things that are really exciting to me, then I'll fully have arrived, and then I'll have the good life. And there's always, it's not the critical voice of the one that says, mm -hmm. oh, you're the worst thing in the world, but the voice that says, on the other side of the fence, there's something better, and you've got to work to get there. And the voice that I constantly have to work against is that voice. And I constantly have to tell myself, don't run. It's, it's not another moment. It's this moment. 
and uh, left to my own devices, I'll just, I'll live in the future all the time and I won't, and, and I'll miss what's right in front of me. Okay, so how do you, are there practices? Like, what do you do to do that? Like, how do you kind of tether yourself in the present? Gratitude, I think, is a big part of that. I find mm. myself uh, on a consistent basis working through things that um, make me acknowledge the gifts that I have right in front of me and to stay here. Um, you know, getting away from technology is an important part of that. Uh, I think uh, I've always had this connection to uh, exercise and fitness. There's something very like tangible about like I'm right here in this moment. I'm not jumping to anywhere else and... I, there's not a level of physicality in the work that we do, like being a preacher or being a podcast or, you know, writer or whatever. Um, and there's something tangible about that that makes me just kind of be right here. Um, yeah, I think those things really help a lot to me. Yeah, exercise is a huge theme of when I work with sevens uh, for two reasons. One is, you know, you're all in that thinking headspace. And um, a lot of times in, in those spaces, people just aren't in their bodies. They're just so far up in their heads. This is particularly true for fives. And I'm, and I'm always saying to sevens, you know, you need to get, you need to get on the ground um, with your feet on the ground and be here. And part of that is get back in your body and out of your head and planning in the future and not being here. You know what I mean? It's like you're not yeah. even – you're disembodied sometimes as sevens. Yeah. And, and when you're exercising, I think especially strenuous exercise, if your only thought is I've got to keep breathing, keep moving to finish this – you don't have the ability. Like there is no ability for you to jump anywhere else. It's just, I've got to get through this next 30 seconds or minute of, of terrible pain. Yeah. Well, and there's that whole piece too, of just the basic thing, which is burning off that ex excessive energy, that frenetic yeah. kind of energy off of the, the periphery of your, of your life, which is so, you know, pretty, pretty unstoppable. Now, we know that, that sevens, at least from the Enneagram's perspective, are people who are afraid of experiencing psychological or emotional pain or distress, might be a different word, or afflictive emotions, or, or not to be in painful or, you know, uh, situations or circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just curious, I, I asked this of sevens, what, what emotion or experience or you know are you most averse to having like that really are like that's the one thing i don't want to experience or mm. feel all right let me tell you a story during the book writing process you have to get people to like let you tell their story or mention their name and the, i i had to do that with you like i did get an email from you saying hey it's okay for me to talk about ian morgan cron in my book and so I go through the list of my publishers. You have to have all these people on board with your book. And then there's one name that wasn't on there that I thought, yeah, um, you know, I talk about this person very briefly. I, I want to at least make sure they're not surprised by this, even though I didn't have to. My publisher said, you don't need to do this. Uh, but I did anyway, because I talked about their story in just 200 words. And I sent them an email. And a couple days later, they sent me an email back. And it says, I, I feel like you describe me poorly. I feel like you made me out like I'm a shallow person and I'm not a deep thinker and I'm just thrown to and fro by my emotions. And I read this email, I'm sitting in my truck and I'm, I walk inside and my wife sees me open the door and her first statement to me is, Luke, what just happened to you? And she could see on my face that I was in deep distress. And I felt like I was in the principal's office when I was in fifth grade uh, because I felt like someone was accusing me 
of like disrespecting them and disrespecting their spiritual journey. And um, I, I guess the, like the, I had a sense of guilt, like I haven't had probably in the last five years as though I was like, I, I was in the wrong. I don't think I, in hindsight, I don't think I, I misrepresented their story. I think they misunderstood what I was writing. But in that moment, I felt like I, I had wronged them and hurt them with my words. And I, I haven't felt that bad, like I said, in half a decade. Hmm. So let's pl- let's probe that a little. Bit. Can I just pu- push something yeah, a little deeper on. and ask you? Was it? I mean, guilt. I mean, yes, absolutely. More deeply, were you ashamed of yourself? Like, like that more deeper space. Uh, so Brene's definition of guilt: I did something wrong. Shame is there's something wrong with me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to use that. Um, First of all, I'm a seven, so I'm not super familiar with those feelings to begin with. So I don't know them well enough to name them accurately, if I'm being honest. Uh, I just had this sense that I don't want to feel this way ever again. Mm. And it was my fault that I felt this way because I didn't do something right. And I don't know if it, I don't know if it went to shame. I, I don't know what it meant, but it was, I wanted to get out of that feeling. Like that was my first response is blame him. He's an idiot. He's stupid. He's, it's someone else's fault. Um, I, I, I just tried to jump as much as I could. And I couldn't go anywhere. I Did couldn't you, come up. Oh, oh! You couldn't come up with a silver lining. Is that what you're saying? Like you couldn't like reframe it as something positive, which sevens might do in that situation? Or no, I, I, I couldn't go anywhere, and I felt stuck. That's a bad feeling, isn't it? It's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah, for a seven, stuck is is tough, especially when you feel like like sevens. I'm told that that what they feel like is that. Oh, wait a minute, I'm. Yeah, I'm stuck and I'm stuck inside this feeling and there's no door. Like there's no way out. This is never going to pass and I I'm not going to be supported in this room. I'm just in here by myself and is that the anxiety in there or what? Yeah, I mean the feeling that you can't get out um that one of my fears is that I go into the darkness and then I can't ever come out. Like that mm-hmm. w- once I start to feel these emotions, then eventually they're they're going to be my only feeling and it's just going to stay there forever. All right. So we, we think that, you know, personality style is kind of a blend of, let's say, n- natural talents, n- innate temperament, disposition, experience, cultural expectations. You know, it's complicated. But certainly circumstances play a role. Um, the influence of important people in our lives play a role in our development. How do you think in terms of personal experience, that you became a seven instead of something else. Hmm. When uh, you, you were down, road back to you stuff, uh, conference at our church, we left, uh, Lindsay and I, my wife, and one of our good friends from our old church in Denton, the, the person who does the intro to my uh, podcast, and they were saying, well, Luke, what was the wound that happened to you? And so they started talking about, you know, my mom was... Um, been sick since I was a kid, and so she was really uh, unable to to be as present as she would like. And so she's, you know, my mom's disability and illness has been, a, you know, a big part of my life since I was a kid. And my dad's a uh, psychologist. He teaches with your uh, former guest, Richard Beck, at ACU, just mm-hmm. retired from yep. ACU. And we've always had these conversations about how, how much can you really go back and figure out what wound causes something. And so there's some cognitive debate that I have over the veracity of those kind of things, those conversations. But they kept on going back, Luke, it was from your mom, and this is what happened to you. She wasn't able to be there, and so you felt alone, you felt abandoned. And Mm -hmm. I just, 
I think that would be the natural answer that someone would look to and go, okay, you have a mom who wasn't able to be there. And so you, you know, you didn't get the affection you wanted. And so you learn how to cope without that. And so th- I think that's the cookie cutter answer to it. Um, but I, I don't know if it's that part of me wonders if it's really that simple. If, if some of this is just, I'm going back and finding a story that fits my narrative that I have right now. And I'm twisting it all to fit that. So I, you're the expert on this, so I trust that you all have come to consensus that this is true. No, no, I I disagree. In fact, I'm uh, I'm the one that never, when I'm teaching, well, first of all, now I, I don't I don't lecture. I do panels now. I think it's so much better to hear from people of individual types more than from me about who they are. Mm-hmm. So I I do more interviewing than I do, you know, kind of just giving information. Uh, I don't like it when I hear Enneagram teachers say, okay, here's the unconscious childhood ex- message or experience because I think human beings are so complicated. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm also not always sure that simply knowing how you arrived at where you are really changes very much. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it might, you, I think we think of, okay, if I can figure out where it started, then, then it's going to fix everything. And it doesn't, yep. you, you know. Uh, and I mean, I think it's I think it's a good a good point of data in as much as it gives you empathy uh, for yourself, or perhaps to close the door on something. But um, I think you still have to just deal with who you are in the present moment and and work with that material. And but that said, I do think there are reservoirs of unprocessed emotion at time. That has to be addressed, and maybe the only way to get to it is by realizing what happened back there that may have caused uh, unacknowledged grief or sorrow. Or so I don't know. I I think I'm like you. I'm a little ambivalent about it, and uh, I think we can become confused about how valuable it is to know that stuff. And I think it's dangerous with the enneagram to say okay there's only only one journey toward being a seven or a four or whatever i agree with that so let me um let me jump into a uh a more tender topic if i can and we're going more tender than this oh yeah you're a seven man i'm gonna pin you to the wall i I feel like this is already (laughs) like 20 minutes into my oprah moment like i should be crying right now if if i wasn't a good seven oh don't worry we can edit it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we can make sure it's at minute 20 okay okay um so i was thinking about this for myself the other day what like what message did you need to hear at 20 or do you wish you'd heard at 20 because it would have saved you a lot of pain and heartache like if you could have really believed it it would have saved you a lot of pain and heartache hmm. so i went off to college when i was um 16 and I okay. You went early. You went off early to college. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh huh. So fast. You like a seven. You got there faster than most people. You. I think that's part of my story. Is like when you have like the precocious sort of get there sooner. I, I would say like my false self is like the star child of. Um, actually, I went to a counselor who talked about adult children of alcoholic parents and adult children of uh, kids who's parent was disabled have a lot in common because everything in an alcoholic's home according to you know this book is is focused on like the dysfunction of the alcoholic parent and so everyone has to learn how to like placate their issues same thing with the disability 
And so like the typical roles that people live into, one of those being the star child as a way to, you know, compensate, whatever that. And, and so this therapist is trying to say, this is probably the role that you jumped into. And I think maybe that was the case going to school at 16, being a preacher early on, you know, there's this level of, Oh, you're, you're supposed to be like the good Christian guy that everyone is supposed to imitate. And I wanted that, that gave me identity. And I think part of what I needed to hear as a 20 year old, I'd graduated college. I'd worked at a couple churches. I was going to be a preacher. I already was had, I had been preaching every week for two years at that point was like, don't take yourself so seriously. Like you're not, um, God doesn't need you to save the world. Your job is not to save anyone. Uh, your job is to, to love your neighbors yourself and to understand that like, you're just a normal person. You don't need to put on this facade that you are some sort of like, Superman of Christianity and just be normal. I, I I wish I would have told myself, skip church every once in a while, go play flag football instead. I wish I would have told myself that sometimes when I was in college. I don't know. There were very many sevens that would say, uh, I, I wish I could, someone would have told me, uh, don't take yourself too seriously. I mean, I think yeah. some people would say that most sevens, that's the problem is they don't take their selves or life seriously enough yeah i know and i'm also probably the most like routined seven you'll ever meet and i i don't do a lot of seven things very well i eat the same food every day i if i don't do my routine i, I don't flourish and i've got a plan to be spontaneous like spontaneous so uh yeah i'm either i'm a seven who lives in a lot of anxiety as a one or um i just transcend the enneagram which is another option which would maybe you know put a spotlight on the, the seventh tendency to, to sort of move toward narcissism. <laughs> Anyhow, um, move towards living. I, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that for a second because yeah, you're describing some pretty one-ish kind of uh, behavior. Um, do you have a lot of anxiety? I don't. Th- <laughs> Do I have a lot of anxiety? See, this is this is why I don't want to come on your pod. My podcast is a lot more fun than this. We're not as like. <laughs> right, I'll tell you what. Oprah I'll tell you thing. what. You can. Right, you're. You are. Um, um, you taught me how to podcast. You were the first. I went and we recorded our podcast at, at your church the first time I ever. You know, was on a podcast. So mm-hmm. you're. You're my. You know. You're my Yoda. Yeah. You taught me. I, you taught me everything I know about podcasting. And uh, so. I'll ask you these questions, and, and sorry, after you answer this question, you can take over <laughs> and ask me some questions that you want to ask. Kevin, How's that? Let's talk about hair care next. That would be my kind of comfortable level. Uh, hair care? I don't think that... Is that what yeah, you hair just... care. Um, <laughs> the, your question about anxiety. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm an anxious person. I think one of the critiques that, like in my... Uh, so for the first uh, last seven years before I moved to Austin, I was a church planner. And so we started this church and, you know, uh, there are times that we had enough money to get through like another month or two. And our, our finance team at one point was like, Luke, you don't seem stressed out at all. Like you seem like you don't even care about this. And I was like, well, we're going to get through. It's going to be fine. And so to them, like I wasn't anxious enough, but I think that's probably not the anxiety you're talking about. I think, I think I have a lot of energy and if I don't invest it into something appropriate, whether that's work projects or being a good parent or exercise that same energy can be the end of me if it's not channeled into something that's for my betterment how does it end up becoming the end of you like have you ever had a moment where you you had a big crash no i think um, i 
I can't like I can't pinpoint a moment where I thought like this went like terrible because often it's I'll have a like a dark night or something like that where I'll be just upset about something. First thing I do in the morning, I wake up, I go work out, and then I can channel that into let's get some stuff done and let's move forward. So I like I haven't had like a season of like hey I'm just melancholy for two months and I want to give up on life. I, I've never had that, but I, I know that that's that that energy needs to be used well. So it's interesting. We just uh, interviewed uh, Fours. As you know, I had I had two shows of Fours, a panel, and uh, I had another uh, Four on recently. Now, if I'd asked them the same questions that I just asked you, they would have taken a lot less time to think up the answer, th- to connect with the answer. Like there was a long pause yeah. between my asking you the question and your answering. Now, if I'd asked you... Um, uh, I wonder if I'd asked you a question that was uh, less heart connected to stuff that was possibly that would elicit negative emotion. If it would have been your answer, would have been quicker. Yeah, this is why I have fours in my life because fours are just like they. You guys are just thinking different ways than me, and you're asking different questions. And um, well, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? I. As I look, I have a sort of a list of I like I love to collect questions, sure. right? Uh, not for the podcast, but just in general, mm-hmm. right? Like questions that sort of evoke sort of deep, deep thinking about life, deep reflection about life. And it'd be interesting to compare my question list to yours because as a podcaster, I'm sure you're aggregating questions all the time, aren't you? Yeah, my first question is: Who is your favorite fictitious TV president? Is that one of your questions? <laughs> That's a great question, though. No, that is definitely not one of my questions. Sheen from West Wing. Easy answer. Next question. Oh, I thought... Oh, well... That's the easy one. You're going to say Frank Underwood. I know you, because you like things to go dark. No, it definitely would not have been Frank Underwood, because that's malevolence, man. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not about the malevolence, you know? So, okay, tell me your question, your, your questions that you have. Uh, no, because now I'm embarrassed by my own darkness. <laughs> They're not dark. My questions, they don't... Well, here's the thing. They don't feel dark to me. Well... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They feel dark to you, but yeah. I mean, maybe the question, how do you feel when you're stuck at a red light could feel dark to you. I just don't, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, um, uh, I have a different bar. One of my musicians, we were talking about doing lament and service and we're talking about like, you know, evoking sad emotions. He goes, oh, like when uh, at the uh, at the end of Trolls or something like that, when he ha- or in Trolls when he loses his mom or grandma. I'm, I was like, that's that's like your bar for like, that's the most sad thing. And uh, <laughs> run, Bambi, yeah. run. The weird thing is like <laughs> to people that I work with, they're like, you know, Luke, you're trying to incorporate lament and um, other parts of like worship services that we're not used to in, in our tradition. So they're like, you're like the saddest seven that I know. Who knows? No, but you know what? My son's a seven, and you all have a melancholy streak from time to time. Mm-hmm. You, you, I've seen it. You also, like my son, loves to listen to what I would call, you know, sort of heart-pulling soundtracks to movies um, or, you know, music that kind of might generate uh, sad feelings, you yeah. know? I have a playlist called Sad that I listen to. <laughs> It's just called Sad. That's all it is. Okay, but yeah, but hold on. What songs are on the Sad playlist? Um, have you ever heard of a band called uh, Frightened Rabbits? Frightened Rabbits. No, I've not heard of okay. Frightened Rabbits yet. They're they're kind of in my 
Yeah, I mean, that's they're kind of like the top of my sad playlist these days, but I would encourage you to check them out. Give me another name. I want another name on the playlist. Okay, I'm just going to pull it I'm out. I'm just going to pull out the... Uh, how, would you feel, how would you feel if I took you to see Manchester by the Sea? Oh, there's no way I was going to watch that movie. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. Uh, okay. <laughs> how about the... Did you like the Scarlet Thread? How was that for you? Didn't see that one. My dog Skip. How about some sad movies? I'm trying to think of old sad movies. No, um, I, I, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. All right, you want to hear some of the playlist? Yeah, I told okay. You. So uh, we have Johnny Cash's uh, "Hurt." Um, yeah. That's not sad. That's just bad. Is what that is. It is sad. It's but it's also just bad. Uh, <laughs> um, hmm. What's I don't know. How to say this guy's name. Uh, Stevens. First name starts with an S. Sifian? Yeah, there it is. His song. That's very four energy right there. Is that from? That's really. He's four-ish. got a song called Tanya Harding, which was just outstanding. Oh, it's yeah. great. Um, yep. uh, do you want more of these? Those are pretty angsty. I know. Um, angsty for a seven, maybe. Yeah, that's. I mean, there's a lot of Joy Williams. We can never go back. Oh boy, Civil Wars. Joy mm-hmm. Williams. Uh, mm-hmm. Dallas Love Field uh, is a song by uh, Henry Jameson. Right. Okay. Wow. My plan in this podcast was not to talk music with you because I would be revealed as an imposter the more I talk, and it's already happening. No, those I are would, great. Those are great artists you're talking. About, unless those are the only four songs no, on the no. playlist. I want you to. I want you to. Can <laughs> go find um, Frightened Rabbits. This is your homework. Frightened rabbits. <laughs> You're laughing now. You're going to be crying soon. Like, no, no, no. You'll actually. Oh, really? You'll get a big smile on your face with how sad this is. Oh, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm so in. Okay. I'm, I am so in. Um, so my son's a seven. Mm-hmm. And by the way, and I did take him to see Manchester by the mm. Sea on New Year's mm. Eve. On New Year's, man. Yeah, I know it was. It was not my best father no, moment. It's not. He's up in Brown. Is that where he goes to school? Yeah. We need to send him to Texas for Cousin Luke seven time, and we'll do a lot more fun things than uh, than than father son time. All right, what would you take him to do? What like as a what would you what would you if Aiden came to spend a weekend with you two sevens? What 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 would you all do? Is he uh, more of a musicy fellow or is he more of a sporty fellow? <sighs> I just like the fact that you're calling him a fellow. Well, <laughs> I'm not saying you can't. a lad, a, a wee uh, child, chap. I mean, I'm a fan of stand-up. I would maybe, if, if we had a, a good stand-up act in town, I'd take him to go see a, a show there. Um, obviously, got to get a lot of good food. Right. That would be important. Um, I mean, Austin's a great town. You know Austin. Austin's kind of a pretty pretty great town if you're yeah. a seven. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do. Good food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, Frightened Rabbits, Spotify doesn't even have them. It's very oh, sad. Oh, come on. Sp- uh, definitely right, so, has them. So listen, um, it's interesting you should call it, I love it when sevens use words like fellow or lad, because you know, you guys are kind of good for that stuff. Yeah. Like, for example, let me get this. I have this friend of mine who's a seven, and uh, if he meets a guy that's like, his name is Charles, and he's introduced to him, he goes, oh, hey, Charles. And two minutes later, it's, uh, Charlie, you're the best guy ever. And then it's like, Chuckles, you are the, I mean, I love hanging out with you. And then it's like Chippy. And it's like he keeps changing yeah. the name and making it more and more fun and casual and familiar, even though the guy hates being called anything else yeah, except I'd, Charles. It just becomes more yeah, and more. I do, that. do you do that? I just want to know. Because you've never called me Ianny or Eeny or I, like, not to I my mean, face, I can work anyway. on those if you want. I have nicknames that I've given to my elders here. 
a handful of them have nicknames. So they've really? even been like, they now are called that by the rest of the elders. So that's pretty neat. That is exactly what I, you just said in short, what I was going to try, took too long to say, which is you guys actually have the audacity to give people fun nicknames. One of the things I'm most proud of is we had some subcommittees working on, uh, you know, different ideas and researching stuffs. And, and the nicknames that I gave to those committees are what they're now just accepted as the term form. And that I am <laughs> beyond ecstatic by that. Um, I need examples, you know, hard please. Hard pass on that one. No. Well, I, what do you mean uh, hard I, pass on it's, that one? It's, uh, it's insider baseball. Oh, I see. So at your 5,000 member church, only 25 people know what they are and you're afraid that the other 4,975 well, no, 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 no. are going to find I, out about the it? The concern is that I'm not the only one in the room. And so I, I can tell my stories, but they're, they're silly names. They're just <laughs> people's names that have now taken on a, a name of a committee. So I, I, I'm overselling what it is. But anyway, I, see. I did say uh, once well, you were on my podcast years ago, because like I said, you were one of the first people I ever wanted to talk to. I started a podcast just to be your friend. And when you were on my podcast, I said the word britches. And we, you, you st- were like, oh, did you just say britches? And you, we had to like stop and backtrack that I use the word britches as a normal term that some would use for chinos or pantalones. Well, I have to say, I, I, this is a seven thing because my son came home the other day and he says, this is the kind of thing he'll say, don't be such a rube. That's and I go, what? He goes, don't be such a rube. And I'm like, where did you get the word rube from? Oh, it's a British word and it means this. And, or he had a, uh, oh, uh, here's another one. After a storm one day, he goes, oh, petrichor. And I'm like, what? He goes, you know what that is? I said, no. He goes, that's the smell in the air after a rainfall. It's that scent in the air that you, it's like unmistakable, but there's actually a word for it, and he knew it. And it's like Mm -hmm. sevens find words. It's almost like, oh, a fascinating idea captured in a word that I've never, it's new and it's exciting. Uh, Do you do that? Yes, when I was in... Uh, sophomore English in high school, uh, our teacher's name, Mr. Bedillion, and we would have vocab lessons every week, as most English classes do. And I started using the words that we would have in vocab lessons in my vernacular, partly because there was a girl next to me named Ingrid who would get upset every time I'd, I would do that. And so my language would just be, well... Um, uh, thank you for the erudite response, Mr. Padillion. And as a tenth, like a tenth grade, I'm just using that word normally, just because I think it's really funny. So yeah, I I I respect that a lot. Okay, it's because the word is funny because it elicits a funny or a surprised response. Is that is that why you? Yeah. So it's the uh, it, it doesn't it, it's the offbeat. Like you're, you're talking normal, and then all of a sudden you throw in, uh, well, you know, stop being such an anti-disestablishmentarialist. Uh, like it just it's funny to me. Like that's a great word. It is a great word. I still don't know what it means, well, but it is a it is a it is a it is a fine word. If you're going against the established church, and I don't like you because you're going against the establishment, that means I'm being an anti-disestablishmentarialist. Wow, this you, you just made getting up yeah. today worth it. Now yeah, that I know welcome. that. All right, so tell me what uh, what what most needs attention in your life right now. <laughs> That's Gosh, one of those questions. Really I gave you a break for a few minutes. We had a we like didn't. fun time for about five minutes, eight minutes there. Now, now it's back to four questions. So, what what needs what most needs attention? And you're thinking of it as a seven. What most needs attention in your life right now? Hmm. <laughs> you don't. I don't have, have it. Do like that. I don't have like. Hey, this needs because if it needed attention, I would have worked on it like I would if there's something that I feel like hey I need to do this differently 
I would create, put it on my to-do list, I would create an action plan, and I would move forward with it. I mean, there are ideas that have just come up, but nothing that I've had, hey, this has been going on for six months, I definitely need to fix this. Um, Do you have things in your life that you've been going, you know, I really need to do something about this, and I'm just going to put on the back burner and ignore it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, um, yeah. uh, It's interesting, just the different lenses through which people see the world. To me, that's an emotional question. That is not a task or thought related <laughs> okay. question. Isn't that interesting Gosh. though? I mean like, and maybe I should have said it. I mean, Anthony, you're for, how did you hear it? I that, heard it like, as an emotional question. As an emotional like, question, right? What kind of answers so, would y'all give? For me, it would be, what kind of answers huh? would you expect someone to give to that question? Um, You know, it'd be something like, um, I'm going to make this up, but uh, uh, I need to begin to deal with my anger about this or I need to what needs attention right now in my life is uh, yeah just it would all be about inner work Hmm. somehow you know what I'm saying like it would be about the heart that kind of stuff that would be naturally right where I gravitated toward and you gravitated toward you know more um, external things that needed addressing um, versus uh Turning your gaze Maybe I need to get an inner life. That might be something I need to work towards <laughs> an inner life. <laughs> now that's okay. So that's all fun and games, but we all know you have an inner life. And I, this is something I know about sevens, uh, and that is is that you actually have a, a rich inner life. You don't like to talk about it very much. I feel like I've I write about it because I can control the parameters in which my inner life is seen and. Not seen like I'm not trying to three it up and make it look perfect, but it's on my terms. I've established how I'm going to deal with my inner workings. And I feel like in my writing, I'm doing so much of like the first book is dealing with my doubts. And the second book is dealing like with um, like monsters and fears that I have. uh, So more spiritual formation stuff. And I feel like I'm writing very autobiographically, even if I don't. And maybe that is that need is being itched in that facet of my life, so I don't feel like I need to do it everywhere else. But yeah, I don't I don't jump to the heart stuff if there's something that needs to be fixed. I think of action. So yeah, I guess that's the difference of a seven and a four, or at least this seven. Well, and there's some other numbers that that might be more sympathetic or, or thinking like twos probably would as well. Um, you know, versus things outside. Uh, of themselves because that's just I mean it doesn't make you better or worse you know what I mean I'm just saying that every number's attention tends to migrate somewhere and ours would definitely migrate to two different places if you said that doesn't make me better what are the things that do make me better than you (laughs) (laughs) oh we don't have the time really I mean seriously there are so many things better about you than me and trust me as a four I can go through the list because like, you know, um, I can find all kinds of things that by comparing myself to you that might make me feel envious and lesser than. Um, so, you know, whatever. It's, it's all good. I, I'm used to wallowing in that space. All right. So it's okay. So, but, but here's the thing. What you just said kind of ties into what I said about the music thing. Like, what I see in Seven sometimes is as long as they can control uh the the feeling so in other words like aiden might go listen to a sad song and i think in his mind without even well maybe unconsciously he's like 
I want to feel sad. I mean, I can, I can, I can go there, but I only want to go there for three and a half minutes. Or, I mean, in writing, you know, I, I mean, let me ask you a question. In your writing, do you tend to start to go deep and then tell a joke to lighten the lighten the mood on the uh, page? I do that more in my preaching. I mean, if people listen to this podcast, they hear it like there's serious moments and I jump around to a joke to get out of it. Um, I don't know if I do it as much as my writing because that's something that's coming along later in my life, but especially early preaching, I, I would do that very naturally. Okay, so you start to get toward a tender feeling, something that might arouse some afflictive emotion in you, and then you, you just tell a joke to kind of exactly. diffuse oh, yeah. it. Oh, golly, it's so funny. I was speaking this weekend here in Nashville at an Enneagram thing. I probably cried three times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I, like somebody, I was interviewing a panel and somebody just shared mm-hmm. so deeply and it just made me feel so alive and so grateful and, 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 and like it was very a transcendent moment when they were sharing and tears came to my eyes and that was just like rich. And like I've seen sevens in that moment like do stuff that was like so inappropriate. You know what I mean? Like where they just told a joke and it was like it got just yeah. too deep and they oh, yeah. and uh or they missed the moment. They just they just filled the silence. Like the silence that followed, they couldn't it, sit in it. Hold on, Anthony wants to say something. You gotta say it loud so, if you're gonna come over here, you gotta come over here and say so, yeah. it. I just spoke at church, did three services this Sunday, and the way that I communicated to Mary Keith that they all went well was people were all crying and grabbing <laughs> tissue. <laughs> that was the, the that was the measure of success. Uh, That's a, there's a four. Uh, he, here's the exact opposite. Some like this past Sunday, I felt like my sermon wasn't going well because I didn't have any jokes and I didn't hear laughter because laughter is the easiest thing for me to go. Okay, they're picking up what I'm putting down. Whereas. Um, yeah, y'all are looking for tears. I, laughter is just like, hey, we're, we're following with what you're doing, and that makes me at ease when I'm speaking. So you cried yeah. three times this weekend. I don't know if I've cried three times preaching in like the last ten years. Okay, so I, I don't mean crying. I mean I was I was deeply moved. You sort of a knotted throat, deeply maybe puddled, but I'm not crying. I'm not like not like donkey snorting mm-hmm. crying. I'm just saying moved, d- affected, deeply affected. Yeah, I have you ever had a moment in preaching where you had to stop? But you were like, you had to pause for five or six seconds because something deeply moved you. I had a friend pass away recently. I think that's not really the conversation we're looking for. I mean, that obviously having to talk right after that was, I mean, really emotional. And, uh, you know, I cried every service talking about that. But in terms of a non-tragedy related tear? I don't know. I'm just asking the question about, yeah, I mean, it's like, does do, do those feelings come up naturally for you? It doesn't sound like they, they come up no, naturally. I, before I had kids, I never cried. I just didn't do it. And now that I have kids, I feel things because of my kids that I've never felt before. And mm. I, well. in my preaching, yes, sometimes it comes up, but also I'm not like freestyling up there. It's not open mic night, and I'm just trying to find material in a sermon. Like It's, it's well-thought-out stuff that's not... Um, that's not unedited. I mean, I, I've worked through this, and so it's carefully cold, and I don't think... Emotions come up in the writing process, but I, they're not surprising me. Whereas th- things with my kids uh, affect me in a way that nothing else does. And I've, I've, I'm a drastically different person because of my kids. And thinking about them, thinking about them and having the sad playlist on, I, I, I can have tearful moments pretty consistently. So... But what's interesting for seven sometimes is it, it seems to me that what attracts them to that experience is the novelty of it. It's like, oh, a new feeling. 
Ah, it's sad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or it's this. It's like instead of it just because I instead of like no, this is sad and I hate it. Like, but I'm gonna have to sit in it because mm-hmm. here it is. I think that's what you were describing at the beginning of the show. You know, like like you could not get out of um, that negative feeling that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, because I, I would think, okay, I'm going to go to my garage gym. I'm going to lift something heavy. I'm going to go swim. I, I'm literally going to go run, and I can work through that stuff. I mean, that's my way of working through it instead of sitting in it. Uh, so, yeah, that's... All right, so let's end up with this one, okay? Going back to the beginning. After this experience, you, you, this author or this other person whose story you wanted gets back to you. You're surprised at the... And probably feeling really bad. Like, I didn't even have to ask you this. Why did I even do this, Right. Um, like, what did you, how did you resolve it? Like, how did you, like, how did you, like, the first thing you said is you kind of became, what, judgmental a little bit, which would, or like, you know, it's your fault, uh, is that? First of all, you didn't understand this correctly. Let me explain this to you so you you see where I'm coming from. I, let me give you a longer section for you to read. Um, my first thought is like, you just didn't get what I was saying. And then. Oh, that's normal, yeah. And then once, it, like, that was my only option. And then at that point, it was just, I, I feel really bad. And so I write this email of, I'm really sorry. I would never want to do that to anyone. Of course, I'll take this out. And so he let me off the hook, right? Like he sends me an email right back and says, hey, don't feel bad. I I don't think you meant this maliciously. Uh, I just, X, Y, and Z, this is what I was thinking. Um, And so him to give me that grace of saying, "I, I know you didn't mean this as an attack on me. You weren't trying to slander my name. Like that was the moment where I could... I want to say move forward, but get out of that feeling of being stuck. So uh, how long did it take you to move past it? Did you like go fix that right away? Oh, yeah. I I immediately emailed him back. And once he sent me the email, which was this whole like email one, my response, his response, uh, 30 minutes or something like that. It wasn't prolonged. Okay. So it wasn't. Yeah. Okay. All right. And I would do the same thing. I would want to resolve that really quickly. I'm not... I don't want to sit in because here's the thing. I would start making movies in my head, right? Mm-hmm. I'm launching movies like, oh, um, I'm, I'm seeing where this is heading and or where what he's thinking and doing at his house at that very moment and how much he mm-hmm. hates me. You know what I mean? Like I we all kind of make movies in our heads, you know, to try and predict the future. Yeah. Kind of buffer us a little bit. All right, well, listen, tell us about your new book. You got a new book coming out. When, when's it coming out? In, in October. Oh, my Lord. Tell, tell us about it. Uh, I mean, it's pretty much the best book anyone's ever written, I think. That's what my, my, my wife told me. Yeah, um, right. I mean, bigger than yeah. Dostoevsky. It's bigger than any of the Russians, for example, right? Partly because you can spell my last name, and you can find it on Amazon a whole lot uh, easier than that guy. Dostoevsky. Yeah, him. Um, yeah. <laughs> I really love the content. I've, it, like, it, it means so much to me. This is me trying to make sense of my faith when like, I found myself as a pastor going, wait a minute, I don't really, like this faith thing isn't working for me anymore. And I was going like, I, I've lost my career and wh- what am I doing? Um, and this was like my journey out of it. Like the reason I started my podcast was to ha- have people I respected help me make sense of a faith that wasn't working for me anymore. And so the book is like how I'm keeping faith. Everyone has things that you would change, which means if you were God, there are things that you would do differently. And that in turn, you have a different definition of what God should do. And I think that's the expectations that we all bring to the table. And if you want to make sense of your faith, you're going to realize that those expectations often aren't going to happen. And when those expectations don't work, often faith becomes this thing that doesn't seem real anymore. And 
the solution is you don't have to get rid of faith. You have to get rid of your expectations. So that's what my book's about, getting rid of your expectations. Okay, so is this like the maybe the idea that you can't, you need to own up to the fact that if you're disillusioned, you had illusions? I think it's, yeah, it's acknowledging that we all bring illusions to the table and we expect those to be realized and they're not. Okay, so I would say that I had a moment in my life once and I remember where I was uh, when I came to this realization. Um, I was so angry at God about something and uh, I remember saying something like, you know, I I agreed that I would go into ministry and do all these good things for other people if you would do this, if you would take care of yeah. my family, if you were going to do this, right? All right, expectations, right? Yeah. And yeah. I said, you know, we had a deal. And then I stopped and I went, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> and, and like yeah. in my head, I looked at the bottom of the contract and realized there was only one signature. It was mine. Yeah. You know, like there was yeah. like God had not co-signed my BS. Um, so, I mean, again, is that kind of where this... Yeah, I think everyone's expectations look different. I, I have one friend who, uh, Olympic uh, gold medalist, and her sister, after she lost uh, the Olympics, a race that she was favored to win, said, God, I I thought you were going to make my sister win. Like, that's I, I expected you to do this for me. And, like, some of those are kind of outlandish. Like, I expect you to make me win a gold medal. But some of us just... I think your Bible, this sacred text we have, should make sense to me. I think knowing you, God, shouldn't be this difficult. I think... Um, if I say a prayer, I should at least feel like you're present with me. Like the, some of those are like more baseline expectations that we bring that are not just these grandiose, God, give me the Cadillac and the big house on the hill kind of stuff. Although and, although that's a good prayer. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've tried that one. I don't have the right formula yet, but I'm working on it. That's because you yeah. don't have the faith. If you had enough faith, you would have that Cadillac and the big house on the well, hill. Well, fr- from your lips to the ears of God. So <laughs> let's make that happen. <laughs> I'm going to get you a pink Mary Kay Cadillac. I'll take it. I'll Escalade. take it. My truck is 12 years old. I need a new one. I've been in your truck. It is 12 years old. All right, Ouch. so... Ouch. um, Yeah, so that's not a very seven-sounding book. That sounds pretty intense. And you had a crisis of faith, right? Well, I think the books that are most compelling is not like a... And I've joked about this with the guys who run Catalyst. Uh, this president, the guy who was the president before, Brad Lominick, is often I feel like, like leadership books are threes rationalizing their dysfunction. And you don't or need to... Or spinning it. Or spinning yeah, and, it into a success. And like you don't need a two to talk about or, or like a five to talk about, hey, this is how you don't get overly influenced by your emotions. Or this, you don't need a nine saying, hey, this is how you don't get in conflict. Or this is like, you, you need the books not where people describe their natural strengths. You need stories of people who go into the things that aren't comfortable. Because I think that's where, you know, the real resolution that we all need to find is experience. Like a, a seven going into their pain and their doubt and their dysfunction. I, honestly, that's a story I'd rather read than hearing me talk about how you can always be happy. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think actually that's a really good insight. Oftentimes self-help books or books that give sort of facile answers to very deep questions tend to be uh, the kind you're just talking about, which is I'm just going with the flow of what I would like the world to be, and here it is. This is a very simple answer. Yeah. No one gets anywhere with that. So how did you – can you just give me a precise, a very short summary of what your, what brought you to a place of something of crisis in your faith? I think it first started like when I was in grad school and like, hey, I I thought faith was supposed to work a certain way. Uh, But I don't think, if you tell me your theology, I probably can tell you part of your story, like who you are, because theology is autobiography and you can't disassociate just what you think from what you've experienced. And I would say, you know, part of my faith falling apart is like, you know, I did the typical grad school thing and I realized, you know, the Bible's a whole lot more complicated, but it also was... um, 
you know, my mom's health, it never got better. It was, you know, my first ministry job was a train wreck and I planted a church that never became what I thought it was going to be. And, you know, all these things were just like, they weren't going the way I thought they were supposed to go. And life was a lot more challenging and complicated than I ever imagined it to be. And faith, I think for me was like this structure that I could always lean on. And it was like this um, thing that kept me from the unknown and I realized that the unknown wasn't something to be afraid of, but that was actually where I found God. And it wasn't mm. until I embraced the fact that like, I'm a, I am out of control and I don't have order and I don't have things going the way that I would build them if I could. And ultimately what I found is that God isn't just in this narrow box that I built for, for who God is supposed to be, but you know, God is found when I let go. Like Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. And I think that's a, a real experience for us today is that you, uh, until you can let go of all these things you've held on to, you're never going to fully embrace who God is. And that, you know, for me, it's church didn't go the way I wanted. It was losing my first job out of school. It was, you know, my mom's health, you know, and the, the struggle that was, it was um, a gay roommate in college who I thought we could pray away the gay. And all of a sudden, you know, God would, you know, make his life easier for him. And life is just far more complicated mm. than that. I am really looking forward to rereading. I've read the manuscript in its galley form, you know, and I, I, I'm looking forward to rereading it again with the, these new, sort of the, this new perspective, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't really read it through that lens the first time. So I'm, I, I'm looking forward to, I'm just fascinated that that's the book Why? you wrote. What's so fascinating about that? Um, I think it's just indicative of some, some real health. I mean, I, and, and maybe that's because we're all kind of naturally biased so that if somebody starts to act more like you, right, then you think, oh, that's health, <laughs> you know? Like, like a seven may say, oh, Ian, you're having a really good time right now. You're starting to look like a seven. You must be moving yeah. toward health, you know? So we all have this sort of more positive bias toward some of that, you know? Um, and uh, But I do think, for example, there is some truth in it. Like hanging out with sevens like my son or you, there's... It's not like I don't. I'm not a fun person. I'm just saying it. It it, it corrects my excesses mm-hmm. in the opposite direction, right? And I think sometimes for fours are good for sevens because we correct your excesses uh, when when you're being too evasive of what is. I, I tell a story in the book about uh, one of my good friends who is a four. Uh, five Wing. He's a filmmaker. He used to be a uh, big wing at Hillsong, and now he's an independent independent filmmaker, and he's working for companies like um, World Vision and Compassion. And so I'm in Nashville preaching at our mutual friend Josh Graves' church, and I'm about to discern about how God is present everywhere. And before I go up to preach, he's, he texts me, and it's a picture of this woman who's working for two dollars a week breaking bri- or breaking rocks, and she's got her toddler son on her lap. And this is like those are the films he makes. All day long. Like, that's all he does, film like that. And I'm trying to reconcile the idea that God is everywhere, God's presence is in all things. And then you've got a woman who's making $2 a week breaking rocks while her toddler is sitting on her lap. Like, I, I, until you can reconcile the good of God in all things, it's it's nothing. And that's what the fours mm-hmm. do for me. It's like, okay, not only is this, like, go to comedy club and have a lot of fun there, but, like, reconcile also this picture of these kids who are in... Um, like forced labor working on boats that they're going to have a very good chance of drowning on as a form of like this slavery that's going on right now. Bring those together and make sense of that and then you have some mm. good news. All right, so we got to close up. I want to ask you a question. If um, if you had a, a chance to tell sevens, two, three, four things that, that practices that 
you think move you toward a, a, a sevens toward a, a place of health where you're beginning to integrate and allow the hard side of life, those more difficult, afflictive emotions in to carve a deeper place or to cause to create a place in you that's larger for God to mm-hmm. inhabit. What, what would those few practices or disciplines be? Give them some advice. I think silence is a big one. You've got to find practices of sitting in silence, not going anywhere, um, being present to how you feel. Like n- naming, I think, your feelings doesn't come very easily to me as some of these great responses I gave earlier about my feelings uh, reveal. But n- naming what those are and sitting in them, don't run from the pain. Um, you're always going to try to be consuming the world, but use a small spoon. You don't have to get everything. Leave mm. some on the table. Mm. I love that, by the way. Every once in a while, listen to a sad playlist. Not all the time, but like just once a Frightened month. Frightened Rabbits, for example. Yeah, the right. clean version. Brother, I love you. It's good to spend time with you. And love you too, man. I'm sorry you had to say terrible things about my truck. I hope you repent of that. I love though. your your truck is something I would never personally drive uh, because I have nothing to compensate for but I like your truck (laughs) (laughs) it is a normal it's a normal when does your book come out oh next January next January Mm -hmm. okay it's Harper One right yep you excited about working with Harper One I am Mm -hmm. you want to know a fun story about being a seven talking to Harper One okay I interviewed our friend Rob Bell first guest on your show thank you I was the fourth seven, I believe, but he was the first one. <laughs> Not that you're counting. And, no. And then I was driving to do an interview with Rain Wilson. Oh, yeah. And, and so... What is, what is Rain? Is he uh, a five? Or who, what, what do you think he is? Yeah. Five, four, one of those wing, the opposite one. Um, and in between, I had a conversation with Harper One, and they said, we don't like your book. Oh, was so, it, oh really? Because yeah. I had them... Hey, listen, don't feel bad. They did that to me on another book. Well, they did I, that to me on Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me. They were like, what, are you kidding me? This book totally sucks. Yeah, And, I was and like, it was my life. That really hurt. That was a <laughs> memoir. <laughs> it's really hard when Harper One tells you that your childhood sucked. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not bitter about Harper One. I mean, sure, they'll pick your book, but um, whatever. Glad, glad that makes you feel good about yourself. I've got my truck for that, so... We'll move on. All right, brother. Listen, love to you. Love to all. Love to Texas. Ian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir.